0: to start out with a little bit of crowd participation, a little, little bit of hand raising. I want you guys to interact with me for just a moment. Okay, I got two questions for you. First question, total honesty, total transparency. First question, have you ever posted something on social media and then taken it down because you didn't like how it looked, you wanted to change it. anybody, okay? Okay, oh come on, there's more hands than that. Everybody, I'll put up two hands. I've done this so many times. I bet some of you have like 16 pictures of the fettuccine Alfredo you made last night on your phone because you're trying to get the right light and the right glisten on the... Bro- like, we all do this. Here's another question. Who's ever put on an outfit, gotten ready to, to go out for an occasion, looked in the mirror and then said, nope, that's not gonna do it, and then gone back to your room and you changed outfits, anybody? All the guys are like, yeah, I've done that, yeah. We all do this, right? I'm gonna tell you a story to kind of help illustrate this point when... Uh, my fiance Virginia and I had just been dating for just a couple weeks. We've been on two dates and uh, it was this like crucial point in the relationship. Is it going to work? Is it, you know, what are we going to, how's this going to work? We had that first spur of the moment hangout. It wasn't planned. wasn't a planned date. It was just like, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? You know, she had come from a SGA meeting. I had come back from hanging out with some friends at dinner and you get that text from her, hey, what's up? How you doing? Just got done with the SGA meeting. What are you up to? And I mean, I'm loving it. I'm like, here we go. This is it. This is the moment. So my fingers just act independently from my brain at this point. I'm like, oh, you should come over and hang out then. You should come see my apartment. And I hit send and I'm feeling really good about life until I look across my phone and see the train wreck of my apartment. And just the fear that sets in is just palpable. Like it's big time. And I don't even wait to see if she texts me back before I turn into this weird half-breed of, like, Mr. Clean and the Tasmanian Devil. And I'm just, like, like, sprinting through my apartment at this point, throwing half-eaten cereal bowls in the trash. Like, no time to clean them, just straight in the trash. <laughs> Dirty laundry in the bathtub, pull the curtain. <laughs> Dirty dishes in the fridge. Like, there's no time. It, I mean, apple cinnamon spray and Febreze at the same time, you know. any of you had this moment where someone's coming over unannounced, and you have, like, 10 minutes to clean up. This is why I'm not married yet, but I know, married men, you give a heads-up phone call when you're coming up with someone unannounced, right? Right? All the wives are just like, like yes, amen, like you give a heads-up phone call. This is a terrifying moment. So I get the text. She's a few minutes away, and I'm freaking out. Got to finish the last few things. candles strategically placed. <laughs> the clone goes on. Folding the blankets, and I hear the knock on the door. Right as I throw the last blanket over the futon, and I'm like, yes, here we go. Open the door, and the girl of my dreams walks into the cleanest apartment of four single dudes in the world. Like, and I'm just loving it. I'm like, you just nailed that. You killed it. Anybody have had this moment? We all do this. Why do we do this? Why do we all lie to each other? We all have that spare room where we throw all our mess. Like, we all do this. Why don't we just keep it all out for everyone to see and really be real? Like, this is, this is what we all do, right? I'm telling a story to make just a. One point, this is the foundation that I wanna work from today out of Mark 2. Here's the point, that our culture, everything in our culture is geared towards presenting yourself in the best possible way so that only then you can be accepted. Present yourself in a good light, hide all the mess, then you can be loved, then you deserve, then, then you're accepted. That's the foundation that we're working from. And my argument, my uh, point that I wanna make is that we end up functioning this way toward God. We end up functioning this way toward God. So we're going to be in Mark two this morning, chapter two, verse thirteen. And what I want to do is present a radical, foundation-shaking, countercultural, different from our culture picture of the heart of the God of the universe. That's where we're going. That's that's the that's the goal today. So to give you a heads up of where we're going. We're going to look at Mark two. We're going to look at the man, three movements: the man, the meal, and the message. The man, the meal, the message, and then we'll look at a few takeaways. Mark two. Verse 13. Here we go. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, Saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me? God, um, I ask for our short time together today that you would open our minds, you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. That we would be able to lay down our preconceived notions of who we think you are and really look at Jesus and see the heart of you, God. And that would change us. Uh, the a picture of you would change how we live, it would change how we act, it would change how we follow you, God. Would you do this? And would our time together be for your glory and the joy of your people? We ask this for your name. Amen. So I'm gonna give you a little context before we jump into the first movement. Up until this point in Mark 2. Um, Jesus' ministry had been defined by just short pockets, small little moments of healing, of teaching, of following. And this is the first time in the book of Mark that we're told that Jesus had disciples. He had a following, it was plural. His uh, teaching, his ministries begin to gain momentum. And the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees began to take notice. He's no longer just some random dude that's teaching a new teaching, but he's claiming to be the son of God and that he has a following, he has a movement that he's leading now. This is where we're at in the story. So let's look at the man. We're looking at Levi, our boy Levi. This is also Matthew. So one of the 12 disciples writes the book of Matthew. Matthew would have been his personal name while Levi was a tribal name. So we're just gonna use Levi for the sake of the story today. And here's what you need to know about Levi, two things. Number one, he was Jewish. Number two, he was a tax collector. He was Jewish and he was a tax collector. Some of you are like, cool, my cousin's Canadian and he's a plumber. <laughs> like, we, we don't really, that doesn't do anything for us. We don't understand the context of what matters about that. But in first century Palestine, this was a big deal. So let me just give you a little info about what was going on at this point in time in history. So the Roman empire had conquered this area of the world and the Jewish people were under the rule of the Roman empire. And they had imposed their own political ideals, their own military presence and put a tax over the Jewish people. So let's just bring it to modern day. Let's imagine this in our day, World War III breaks out, North Korea invades the US and kicks our tails. Some of you are like, yeah, fat chance. I like we're going down in America. You know, let's just, let's imagine for just a moment, North Korea invades the US, imposes their own government, Kim Jong-un, new dictator of the USA. And they begin to have military presence in our streets enforce a curfew, political ideals of their dictatorship. And they impose a tax on top of our country to fund their own dictatorship. Kim Jong-un comes on the TV, one channel, because they're censored, and he says, hey, we need some tax collectors, some local tax collectors to tax the people and collect the money we need. And Dave Clayton, main, past, main pastor here at Ethos, he's like, you know what? Ethos really hadn't been, been that, that good. Like, I could use a jacuzzi in my backyard, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that, you know? I'm gonna sign up to be a tax collector, right? <laughs> Boo, he's sitting right here. Dave signs up to be a tax collector and begins collecting the tax for the North Korean dictatorship from you guys. And on, on top of that, tax collectors of their day were notorious for charging more than was necessary and pocketing the extra cash. So he comes up to you, Chad, and he says, hey, I know, I know what you were expecting for your taxes this year for North Korea, but it's going to be probably double that. And, and he's going to go add on a second room to his house or he's going to go use it for his own benefit. And now Chad's kids, they, they'll have to go hungry. Yeah, we'd be like, Dave, what the heck, man? Like, what are you doing, bro? Like, we would be so angry at him. This is what Levi is. He's betraying his own people to collect the tax for the Roman Empire. This is the man, Levi. And I think a lot of times I try to romanticize the people Jesus hung out with. We're like, oh, Levi was just kind of down on his luck. You know, lowly, oppressed. And man, it is true that Jesus sides with and walks in solidarity with the oppressed and the lowly. But Levi was the one doing the oppression and doing the abusing of his own people. This is who Levi is. And Jesus draws near to Levi, who in their day was even more outcast than lepers. Someone with the worst disease in the world was hated less than tax collectors, weren't allowed in the places of worship. And so I want you to imagine the scene. Let's jump back into the story. Um, Jesus has a following of disciples, of which include James and Simon and Andrew, who he had just called... A short time before, if you remember, if you were with us a few weeks ago when we studied this passage, what was the profession of the first disciples that Jesus called? Anybody remember? They had nets, the fishermen, right? So where are we? Look at verse thirteen. Somebody yell it out, not rhetorical. Where is the setting of our story today? Lake shore, right? So we're at the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, where Simon, Andrew, and James got called to be Jesus' disciples. Where Levi most likely taxed them. This is awkward. Like they're walking up and they're just like giving him the death stare with Jesus. Can you imagine this moment? This is like when the bully behind you in third grade has been flicking your ear over and over and the teacher finally turns around and sees him. And you're like, yes, retribution will be swift. You know, you're excited for the discipline that is impending on this kid. If you're in Alabama or Mississippi, they call him out in the hall with the paddle. And you're like, yes, this is, this is what Simon's thinking. He's like, I'm ready for this. He's going to lay down the law on Levi." Jesus walks up to Levi. Levi, I want you to be my disciple. Come be on my team. Come, come follow me. Come walk with me. Simon's like, whoa, wait up, Jesus. We're not gonna work super well together. Like, let's think about this. Let's have some reason here. We're not gonna work well. This guy is why my kids have to go hungry. And guys like him. And Jesus defies the odds and draws near to Levi, invites him into one of the most intimate teacher-disciple relationships that you could have. Come do what I do, come say what I say. And Jesus just blows all logic out of, the, out of the water here. How many wonderful, faithful, kind Jews does Jesus pass up in this moment that had been following him for weeks to choose Levi? I think Jesus is making two statements about how he sees people in this moment. So I'm gonna give you two statements under this first movement in the man. First statement, first way that Jesus sees people. Number one, Jesus sees Levi for a real person, not a category, he sees Levi for a real person, not a category. I wonder if we have the eyes of Jesus when we see those that are categorically outcasts or maybe not even outcasts, but just different from us. Do we have the eyes of Jesus here? What are some categories maybe of today? Single mom, homeless, a different race, a different religion, hipster. Some of you are thinking about that, me about right now. You're like, this guy appearing in skinny jeans. You know, <laughs> we have these categories, right? Sorority girl, single mom, you know, all these things we think. And Jesus looks straight through the category to a real person with real needs and a desperate need of healing. Jesus is so different from me. I, I can't even explain the amount of times I've been so prejudiced towards other people that are different and just assumed things about them simply because their first impression, what they're worth to me, what, they, what their value is to me, how good they make me feel or not feel. This is what I do. That's, that's what Jesus does, you know. Tell you a little story just to kind of bring you in, just to be really transparent. Um, I started coming to Ethos about uh, five years ago when I was a sophomore in in college and just got involved on a volunteer team and began to be more involved with what Ethos was doing and just totally honest. At that point in my life, I mean, I was just kind of a privileged white 20-year-old male and very embarrassed about that now, but like that's who I kind of was. I, I didn't have a good view of other people that were different. And I remember encountering this guy named Johnny. Uh, he's one of the guys in our church, just an amazing man. Um, and, and he's homeless, and he sells a contributor outside. And we let, Many of you probably see him on the way in. He's just an awesome dude. And uh, I remember just beginning to interact with him a little bit, little bit by little bit. And it just began to blow my assumptions out of the way. Like, I'd see him every week sweeping the steps, taking out the trash, greeting people. Just unbelievable joy. And I'm like, who is this guy? And I began to just be more curious about him. We began, began this kind of accidental tradition of going and eating this terrible Chinese food, like every few weeks, and just talking about life. And man, I just began to discover man, this guy is the most loyal, generous man. Like, has taught me more than I could ever have wanted to give him. Just unbelievable. Blew my assumptions out of the water. This guy's amazing. He I see him every week, and he's like, Lock in. What's up? How was your week? My week was good. How about you? How about them Lakers? Like, that was the Brooklyn accent, it was terrible, just so you know, it's from Brooklyn. But we love, I mean, that's what happens. We, we see people as categories sometimes With Jesus is saying, no, there's more, see the real person. And it, I think as we begin to see people like that, we begin to see our, our second way that Jesus sees people. Jesus sees Levi for his potential, not just his problems. He sees Levi for his potential, not just his problems. So he looks past the, the, the obstacles, the sin, the social status, all the things that would prevent him from coming and being a disciple. And he says, hey, I want you to be on my team. We're going to look at this a little later, but Levi ends up becoming um, one of the 12 disciples who just does amazing things in the kingdom of God. And Jesus saw this in him from the very beginning. Do we see people as Jesus sees people? And Jesus sees Levi in the midst of his sin, like right in the middle of like thieving, like just straight up like Uh, stealing from people, stealing taxes, says, I've come into your apartment, I've come into the house, I see all the mess. I want you with me, you're not too far gone. Come be on my team, come be my disciple. So if we keep going, Jesus is gonna go from specific to general. He's just called Levi to be his disciple, now he's gonna go dine with a whole group of people identified by their betrayal of their own people. Let's look at, at how this looks in the meal. Jesus is gonna show us that Levi is not the exception to his mission. But would be typical of his mission. So we've looked at the man. Let's look at the meal. Verse 13. Verse 15. This is where it gets crazy. Uh, verse 15: while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Here's what you need to know about the first century: a meal. In the first century, it was one of the ways that you most closely identified with someone, often used to uh, signify a formal contract or agreement between people. And you say, I'm with this guy. You would have a formal meal. And this is what Jesus is doing. It's so different from our culture. Anybody ever been to Burger Up? Anybody like Burger Up? Yeah? Um, Burger Up is awesome, but you have to sit like right next to people, right? Like, anybody else creeped out by that? The tables are like three inches apart and you're like four inches from this guy and he's like eating a burger. Like, I always feel the need to apologize. I'm like, man, this Woodstock burger's on the way and it's gonna get kind of messy. You might need to give me some elbow. Like, we don't think twice about who we dine with. We don't think twice about the people that we eat with and it's just normal in all culture. Just eat with anybody, eat right next to anybody and it's so different from Jesus' day. Jesus is gonna choose to be as closely identified as he could with the most hated and despised people of his day. This is just scandalous. This is not a normal thing. This is a scandal. And Jesus, I think, is making two statements with his meal. He's making two big statements by participating in this meal. First statement, that with Jesus, there is often belonging before believing. There's relationship before repentance. Belonging before believing, relationship before before repentance. So uh, we operate totally backward from this, don't we? A lot of times we say, believe these things and clean your life up. Then you can belong and have relationship. So he doesn't wait for Levi to get his life cleaned up. He doesn't wait for Levi to be fully believing in the son of God. Like Levi doesn't know where he's going or what he's doing. He's just following Jesus and there's belonging, there's relationship. Some of you might've grown up in churches that really wounded you because they operated in a way that was kind of different from this. And I said, hey, you, you can't be a part of our family unless you believe these things and you worship this way and you do this and you mark the check boxes off and that's how some of us have grown up in church and Jesus is just kind of different and man, we have tried ethos to, be, to try and do this. We, we really do. That's why we say every week, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you can join us. You can come be a part of us. Come serve on a volunteer team. Be in a house church. Come do what we do. Come be with us. Go on the journey with us. There's belonging before believing. I think the second thing Jesus is saying by participating in this meal is saying that your performance is not a precondition for my love. Your performance is not a precondition for my love. So Jesus just shows us right through his actions. These people who have just completely bankrupted their lives, who have just gone as far from God as you can get, people with messy lives, people with thought, people that chose the life they're in, people that didn't, people with no hope, crazy life situation. He's saying, man, these people, I love them only because they bear my image. I'm their creator. I just, I I love them. I can't not love them. I can't not pursue a relationship with them. They're dear to me. He's saying, I I don't love you because you're good. I, I just love you. That's what Jesus is saying here. I don't love you and value you. You're not worth anything to me because you're good. I just love you. And the religious leaders of the day just lose it. They just lose their minds. They can't believe this. Jesus is not just any ordinary teacher now. He's a threat to their entire way of life. So think about with me for a moment what the spiritual culture of the day was in first century. Their entire spiritual framework operated on this huge list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. That was their spiritual framework. And only the, the spiritual MVPs, the spiritual CEOs, if you will, could be close to God, could be accepted by God, could be forgiven by God. I mean, these guys memorized the first five books of the Bible as teenagers. I mean, it's hard enough for me to memorize a few verses in Romans. Can you imagine memorizing the book of Numbers? Like, are you, like guess what's in, if you've never been to church for it, guess what's in the book of Numbers? Numbers, right. Like, can you imagine this? Pages of census data. They're working their tails off to be close to God. They're working their tails off. And that's logical, isn't it? That's so simple. That's so reasonable and sensible that if I do the right things and don't do the wrong things, then I get to be close to God. I get to be accepted or forgiven by God. And here's what I really think the Pharisees were doing. I think they just created a small God and kind of that was sensible and reasonable that they could fit in their box, in their little box of their minds that they were worthy of, that they could please. And here's all that is. It's just an illusion of control to say, I get to be in control of my spiritual outcome, that I get to be in control of what, what ends up with my spiritual journey. Present yourself as clean and perfect and cleaned up. Go to church, give your money, do all these box things, and then, then I can be accepted by God. That makes sense, right? That's why so many of us today still believe a similar thing. So many of our coworkers and family members and classmates, we ascribe to this mentality. We just call it different things, right? Moralism, karma. The universe, like, it's just this cosmic scale of good deeds and bad deeds, and which one's gonna outweigh it? Gotta do enough good things so that I can be okay with whatever power it be. And Jesus comes over to the proverbial apartments of our houses, apartments of our houses, rooms of our houses, he comes over to our apartments, and he says, I see the mess, and I love you. God is not who you think he is. He is fundamentally different from your culture. My love, my grace overrides your mess. That's what Jesus is saying here, that God is just different. Man, and I would be mad, too, if I was the Pharisees. Jesus is just taking a sledgehammer to the support beams of their political status, of their spiritual eliteness, and they come after him. They say, Jesus, you claim to be God. You claim to be a perfect and holy God. How? How can you hang out with these people that are so far from you, that are um, so far gone, that have sinned so deeply, How? This is illogical. It's offensive to them. It's a scandal. It's scandalous to their culture. And Jesus is gonna respond to their criticism and his response is just spectacular. It's awesome. So let's look at the message. We've looked at the man. We've looked at the meal. Now we're going on to the message. Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, "'It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. "'I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners.'" He's saying, people that are healthy don't need doctors. That's why I'm here. That's why I hang out with these people. I want to unpack two words for us really briefly so that we can just kind of be on the same page here. The word that Jesus used for righteous, um, it's almost sarcastic in the original language. It's not being literal here. He's saying people that, a better translation would probably be self-righteous. People that think that in and of themselves, of themselves, they have righteousness. They have enough good deeds. They uh, can get it all together. That's self-righteousness. He said, I didn't come for people that have it together, that think they have it all together, that don't need any help. He said, I came for those that are far from me. So that's that second word, sinners. That word has been abused a lot in our culture, uh, carries with it kind of a term of condemnation. And Jesus is just being literal here. He's saying people that are far from me, people that have messed up and sinned and um, have no hope outside of themselves. That's who he's talking about. He's saying, I didn't come for the self-righteous. I came for those that are far from me. And this is just an atom bomb to their entire spiritual framework of understanding life. This is like the moment in The Sixth Sense but after like the whole movie. You're like, the kid's like, I see dead people, I see dead. And then at the end, uh, well, has anybody not seen The Sixth Sense? I should probably stop there. <laughs> anybody not? I, well, if you've seen The Sixth Sense or you know about the movie, you know this moment, one of the biggest reveals in all of film where, um, well, I'll just leave it. At, you know what I'm talking about. Everything you thought was wrong. And you're just like, What? that's so different than, than I was operating in. This is the moment. The religious system of their day will be permanently upended for all of history because of the statement Jesus just said. Here's the message of Jesus. Here, if I could sum, sum it up for us in one simple point. Jesus came for the people that are not perfect. Jesus came for the people that aren't perfect. That's the message of Jesus out of this text to us today. Jesus came for the people that aren't perfect, who don't have it all together, who know they can't uh, do enough good things to, to be in good favor with God. That's who Jesus came for. It's as simple as that. There's um, no requirement for grace other than to know you need it. The only requirement for grace is imperfection. Isn't that awesome? That's good news for all of us in here who are all very imperfect and very needy and very in need of grace. And it's is ridiculous for a doctor to stay away from sick people as it is for a loving God in Jesus to stay away from people that are far from him. And Jesus is gonna say the people that are gonna experience the fullness of my grace and my love and my peace and forgiveness and salvation are the people who know they need it. Those are the people who get to experience it. And this is the true scandal of grace. I mean, grace is not uh, safe, it is a scandal. Looking at someone in the face and saying, accepted, forgiven loved without any condition is dangerous, right? Can you imagine um, one of the prestigious universities in our country, like Harvard? You just call Harvard up. Um, I don't know if you can call Harvard. You just call Harvard up and you're like, hey, I'd like to apply at Harvard. And the only question they have for you is, hey, do you exist? Come on. (laughs) Like, that'd be like crazy, right? No, there's this huge list of resumes and all these things Hey, actually, we're even gonna pay the whole price. We're gonna give you a scholarship. We're gonna pay the price for you to come to our university. That's what God is doing here. No condition, full price paid for all the grace. This is different than, than we thought God was. It's illogical, it's crazy, it's different. We don't know what to do with it, right? What do we do with this grace? It, this is the type of thing that will turn people's lives upside down. And So I wanna give us three takeaways, three um, short takeaways out of this text that we can kind of hold on to for what God is saying to us this morning. First takeaway Jesus is calling us to follow him. It's our first takeaway. Jesus is calling you and I, everyone in here. He called Levi then. He's calling us now, come follow me. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you did last night or this morning or what you're currently involved in, you're in the place you never thought you would be in life, Jesus says, hey, come follow me. I love you. No condition, only grace. Come come follow me come be on my journey, come be on my team. And here's the reality. Um, God's love for you is without condition. But if you wanna experience the fullness of salvation and forgiveness and grace and love, you have to walk with Jesus. You have to put your faith in him and leave the tax booth behind and come up and follow Jesus, put your faith in him for salvation. That's the first takeaway for us. Jesus is calling us to follow him. Second takeaway, we don't have to hide that we are messy. That's our second takeaway. We don't have to hide that we are messy. It's kind of crazy to me. Like Jesus doesn't hide that messy people are who he came for. And we're like, oh, cool. Like we'll, we'll take care of that once, but like we're no longer messy. And this is what we do, right? This is in our conversations every day. We, we say, hey man, what's up? Fine. How you doing? Fine. How you fine? Good. See ya. Right. Have you ever responded fine when someone like doesn't ask that question? You're like, hey, what's up? Fine. Like, it's so ingrained in us. We, we just, we're fine, we're good, no mess, we're fine. I think what Jesus is saying here that you don't hide the mess, you're real. And I mean, this is my temptation right now. Campus pastor, Hillsborough Village, gotta have together, can't struggle with doubt, can't struggle with sin, can't be weak. That's the temptation for all of us. That's, that's heavy on me all the time. I think Jesus is just calling us out. He's, I mean, he's saying, I've come to your apartments. I've come to your houses. I know there are cereal bowls in the bathtub. Or, or better yet, I know there's doubt in the bathtub. I know there's addiction in the closet. I made the closet. I know. I love you. That's what God's saying to us. That's the heart of God. It's so different than what we think, right? Quick side note here. It's, it's easy for us to celebrate uh, when someone who has been far from God for a long time comes back and just receives the grace all at once, we're like Levi, yes, tax collector, hated and despised by all people, now disciple, church planner. We're like, yes, same thing today. Oh, he used to sell drugs and sell children into slavery. Now he's a church planner. We're like, God, God's amazing. We love this type of moment. What about people like me? I, I, I grew up in church. I, I don't have that radical of a testimony and I have tasted the grace of God and continually squander it and continually reject it and continually mess up and sin and uh, am selfish and run from God. And like, what, How does that work for me? Like, it's, it's not as celebrated and it's just difficult, isn't it? Like, don't you get, just get tired sometimes by having to need the grace of God? Like, I, I trust sometimes in the grace of God, but I don't want to need it. Man, it just gets tiring. I think this is what God is saying, like, in our culture, where everything is based on your performance, what job you have, what spouse you have, what grades you have, how you look, what kind of house you're in, that's, that's our culture. Your, your worth and your value is based on that. God is going to say something completely different and say, your worth, your value is solely based in me and my finished work in Jesus. The grace of Jesus is all that we place our value in. That's all that we place our identity in. That's the thing that levels the playing field for all of us in here, that we are all on the same level before Jesus. We all are in need. and We all get to come back in a taste of the grace of God. It's what we put our worth in. It's what we stand on. Third takeaway for us uh, this morning as we um, near a close, Jesus loves you where you are, but he doesn't want you to stay there. Jesus loves you where you are, but he doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want to leave you there. So he comes to Levi and he says, hey, I love you. There's no no condition for you to be on my team, to be with me, to be my disciple. You're so loved, only grace. But he doesn't leave Levi in the tax booth, right? He brings him on a journey. Levi ends up, this is Matthew, ends up being one of the 12 disciples, writes the book of Matthew, and actually writes uh, the book of Matthew to the Jewish people. So he becomes a missionary to the very people that he was a professional backstabber of. That's crazy. Man, the work of God in this guy's life to bring him on a journey. And this is so hard for us because like, it's very difficult to believe that God doesn't love the future version of Larkin better. Like the Larkin of next year or the next year when I have this figured out or when I'm better at this. And man, like, <laughs> my life is a mess sometimes, guys. Can we just all be real? Like, I am messy. My heart is just a a huge mess of doubt and sin and gratitude and selfishness and love and envy and pride. And it's just, it's not pretty. And I think that's where a lot of us are all the time. And it's just hard to admit. And and God is saying, hey, I love you exactly where you are, but I want to take you on a journey. Let's walk around the house and take out the dirty clothes and the cereal bowls and the dishes out of the fridge. And he's saying, I love you. No precondition. I don't love you more um, when you're more cleaned up. But I do want to take you on a journey. I do want to make you more like my son Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's the journey Jesus is inviting us on. So, as we close, as we prepare to go to communion, I invite you to find yourself in the story. Where are you at in this story? Some of us in here today need to receive the grace of Jesus for the very first time and say, Man, I am far from God, I have messed up big time and the, the grace of God is just falling on you right now, and you don't know how to handle it, it's like totally messing with your mind, this is who God is. There's free grace for you. Some of us in here need to accept that grace for the first time, place our faith in Jesus. Some of us in here have tasted the grace of Jesus in our past, but our still messy lives have numbed us to coming back over and over to the grace of God. That's where I am more often than not. I mean, Some of us in here need to lay down the shame, to lay down the guilt, to lay down all of the condemnation that we're carrying with us, and enter back uh, into relationship with God, a relationship with others, to be real with people, to boldly share our mess with God and with others. Lastly, some of us need to begin following Jesus more closely so that the grace of Jesus can flow through us more fully. Some of us need the grace of Jesus to flow through us more fully so we can begin to see people as Jesus sees people, see them for all they could be in the kingdom of God, not as categories, but as real people, loved and dear to God simply because they bear his image, to extend the same grace to them as God has extended to us. Some of us need to go deeper with Jesus this morning. Let's pray.